There are stories being told. By people who are out of their minds. That's what we've always believed. podcast that brings to light ingenious, interesting, and sometimes unbelievable stories from history and mixes in creative storytelling. Every episode, we hope you learn at least four facts that you can use around the dinner table or at the theater to astound your family, friends, or some guy wearing only half a mask. The headlines are ear-catching, that can't be true, factoids, while the explanations show you just how real they are. Every week, there will be two little lies thrown into the mix to keep us on our toes and vigilant for the truth. My name is Breno. And I'm Michael. The topic this week is, uh, well, it's a free-for-all, a potpourri episode, if you will. So in the act of researching and writing episodes, often we both go down paths that have nothing to do with the story at hand. Sometimes we include these tangents, other times we don't. We learned some ridiculous things that can't really be made into their own themed episodes, so we decided on every so often making a grab bag of stories. These will most likely be smaller, but they'll be just as interesting. However, this time, I you told me that yours are pretty long. Mine are little short ones. Like, I don't expect mine to take long at all, so. Yeah, so you're welcome, audience. I brought you the real content. <laughs> uh... Before we start, uh, this does have a mispronunciation disclaimer, at least on my side. We apologize in advance for any mispronunciations to occur. We tried to do our due diligence to find the correct pronunciations of names and places, but there will be a couple times this episode we fall short. This one also has a naughty disclaimer. Uh, this episode includes some light talk about sexual matters, which may not be suitable for the kiddos, so listener discretion is advised. Now let's talk about butts. Actually, they're not about butts at all. No butts will be talked about. I'm so sorry. Ah, you said butt. <laughs> I, will, I will not be talking about butts, I can guarantee you that. I just said I wouldn't either, so. Oh. Wow, way to just be exactly on my level. Oh. Yeah. All right. Before Would we... you like to... Okay, well, okay, my bad. Before we get going, do you know that what the etymology is for potpourri? Smelly stuff on the ground in the woods. Wow, actually, that's actually not that far. So it's French. Popery is. <laughs> okay, go continue. Please. The etymology, though, where, where oh. does it come from? Do you know? Yeah, what it... it's just a bunch of leaves on the ground. Oh, it's a mixture of leaves that smell good. There you go. So it's French. In the 1600s, a common French supper was to put together a stew of all the offcuts of meat, wilting vegetables, and well, everything but the kitchen sink. Popery in French literally means rotten pot. Oh, that's not the same thing. I mean, actually. Some people would think that is exactly what potpourri smells like. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I was joking that you were kind of close, but you just want to be a butt about it. I often am a butt. Hey, you, you're the first one to talk about butts here. The U.S. government owns some of your property. Citizen spending habits can predict the outcome of political campaigns. The Thomas Guides, your number one map source to hell. What was the second one? Citizen spending habits can predict the outcome of political campaigns. Wow, these are really boring. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. uh, that was rude. What was the first one? The U.S. government owns some of your property. 
Okay, the U.S. government owns some of your property. I imagine that is true. You're going to say that because it's not true and everybody just thinks it's true. Like, does it, like, they can just take it away at any time if they want to. I'll get into that. I'll get into that. Yeah, I, ha I have a whole story written. I have a whole story. Oh, did you? You wrote a whole story, mm -hmm. huh? A whole ass story? Yes. Oh, real? Yes. You don't say. What's the third one? The Thomas Guides, your number one map source to hell. Pick that one. That sounds fun. I don't even care if it's a lie. It sounds like fun. So, do you know what the Thomas Guides are? No, but it made me think of Tom Toms, the GPS things, and those things lead you off all the time. <laughs> Honestly, I think they are actually kind of related. And we do have a Thomas Guide. So, they're atlases. Oh, yeah. Those are not good. I just found out there's a lot of... Well, okay. I'm not saying atlas are atlases aren't good but some of the information is outdated and things don't exist anymore and stuff anyways continue i'm not telling your story and i don't think that's not your story but in 1925 george copeland thomas and his two brothers started a street atlas company the first sets were road and highway maps community views and tourist maps of the greater oakland area they relocated in 1940 to los angeles by which time they had released atlases based on a few western u.s cities the 1997 edition that was released for L.A. boasted several things on the cover. A free fold-out map, easy-to-read index, downtown maps with points of interest, and one more thing. Take a guess. Oh, no. Uh, was it uh, satanic sites? 666 new streets this year. And I don't have to tell you how poorly this went and why proofreading is such a big deal. Concerned Christians started calling the publisher and, and boycotting the Atlas. Because of the 666? Fearing, oh that, fearing that the Thomas guides were satanic. Oh my god, people, it's just a number. The publisher ended up re-releasing the 1997 edition, this time only boasting 665 new streets this year. A spokesperson for the Thomas guides said the change was to make consumers, quote, confident in the use of our product. I just want to, I just want to imagine that instead of like they were probably at city hall begging and pleading please just make one more street just please 667 that's not so bad and they're like no but you don't have to include this one street i was about to say which street do you think <laughs> yeah, they took off exactly <laughs> i looked into it a bit and it's very easy to find the reprint issues for sale but what's more interesting is that it's also relatively easy and cheap to find the satanic version about 10 to $25 on eBay right now, and almost none of the 10 or so listings mention the reprint or anything. They're being sold as atlases and not a satanic screw-up. <laughs> because that's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> what do they think? Every time you buy one, it's going to be like, here's your atlas, hail Satan. Here's your atlas, hail Satan. <laughs> well, yeah, so on eBay, you can find both, but like they just, they're just being sold as atlases. It's just an atlas. <laughs> also... Let's be real. Who's buying atlases on eBay? That's in yeah, that's insane. Somebody is buying atlases. I had the same atlas of Nevada in my car since my dad, uh, since I first got my car. My dad's like, you're gonna need this. And literally, it was obsolete like the next year. <laughs> Technically, it was obsolete at the time, but my phone could not do GPS. Technically, we sold it with the car. <laughs> yeah, I, we didn't take the, and it had a lot of water damage. <laughs> that atlas been through shit, and it's not me because I opened it ever. <laughs> Okay, the U.S. government owns some of your property. Citizen spending habits can predict the outcome of political campaigns. Uh, let's go with the political campaigns. Okay, well, you're three for three this week. 
Yeah, because chaotic spending means that things are going to change. There's a phenomena that has been occurring with like-minded people. They tend to move into similar communities and act similarly. In fact, these people have been lovingly called Harbinger customers who live in Harbinger zip codes. These people tend to buy unpopular products such as Crystal Pepsi, Colgate TV dinners, or even support losing political can uh, candidates. Wait a minute, they're tying... Wait, what kind of... Excuse me. Uh, what kind of frozen dinners? Colgate TV dinners. Yeah, they weren't around okay. for very long. Oh, okay, so this was a while ago. I imagine also stuff like Sprite Remix and Altoid Sours. I just realized and... because you said Crystal Pepsi, and Crystal Pepsi hasn't been around for, what, like 20 years? <laughs> so these are old people. Uh, no. Just, well, I guess but, it was but these, the time. Yeah, the... That this study was done. Sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't hear a date. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I don't think I've said one yet. Two MIT professors did six years worth of research to see what their habits were. What occurred was, when these Harbinger zip codes started buying a newly brought to market product, it was more than likely destined to fail. New products are ones that have been released within three years, and failure is not meeting the three-year threshold. If a Harbinger customer buys these products at a two-to-one rate versus a regular customer, the product has a 31% chance of failing and not reaching oh, the, no. the three-year three -year mark. You're like, oh no, if this, the person that bought Crystal Pepsi buys this, we're doomed. If a Harbinger customer buys the product at least three times, the chance of failure rises to 56%. Oh no, because these people, they just like loser stuff. They like loser products. They're just like eternal losers. <laughs> and I'm telling you these numbers like it's just one customer. But that's the most interesting part. In reviewing over 77,000 customers, the Harbinger customers all spend the same way. So what I'm saying is the singular Harbinger customer, but it really extends to all of them. It's incredible how they can all skew a chart like that. Oh my god, that's crazy. So basically what it comes down to is if a person is drawn to a certain area to live and are more risk averse, they are probably more likely to try new things even multiple times. That's what the researchers conclusions were and the mit paper goes out of its way to state that systematically the harbingers are able to identify these really terrible products that fail to resonate with the mainstream so they're cool kids because they like things other people don't like god i guess you could really read this multiple ways huh yeah I looked at the data like you could really skew it to say whatever you want but like it's it's interesting that such a large number act in such a strange way oh i know one loser product that we both like oh yeah uh definitely it was the little caesar's uh like cheeseburger pizza <laughs> we still have been able to find again <laughs> so they didn't touch on stuff like that because like so that was a small market thing that was a, a market test where in in the reno area in the mid 2010s little caesar's brought a cheeseburger pizza and it didn't sell well but Damn, that was delicious. Oh, it was so good, especially drunk. And honestly, I did look up maybe two weeks ago a recipe for it. <laughs> I think fondly of that pizza. Anyways, yeah, I they, they didn't specify that kind of stuff. I don't know if Harbinger customers would get those kind of market releases I because guess that's true. Besides, they, all... they would they would buy the they would buy that product so easily. They would they they would sell out of that product. Uh, what I couldn't find out, and I think the researchers did this on purpose, was they didn't actually give out the zip codes. Of where these places were. Because they don't want people to feel bad. I guess. I don't know. So wait, when was this done? Oh, uh, yeah. I guess I didn't actually say that. Uh, the the data they looked at was between, I want to say 2005 to 2011. So, like, so Crystal not that... Pepsi was around in 2005? 
I remember when uh, Pepsi One came out. That was a hoot. Anyways. <laughs> you sound so thrilled about it. I enjoyed it as a child, but I realized because it was a child, I'm pretty sure it's because it had like a 3,000 time sugar content. <laughs> okay. So the U.S. government owns some of your property. So most governments govern property based on what they can do to it. They can police it, they can tax it, they can reclaim it for the good of the community, and then compensate the owner. And one more thing. Take a guess. Oh, uh, they can grow their eggplants on it. Wow, I, I could really use some crickets in I here, can't. Huh? I can't dispute that, but that's not... Oh, so it's not eggplant specific? It's not eggplant specific. Oh, Okay, well, why don't you tell us what it is then, Michael? Have you ever heard the term escheat? E-S-C-H-E-A-T? I mean, maybe, but probably not. No, I have not. I've not heard of that. Okay, so let's go to make-believe land. Say you owned a farm in the middle of Nebraska, but you died unexpectedly and without a will. Where does your property go? I'm really too dead probably to figure that out. I'll have to let the people who are alive do that for me. Well, this is the main purpose of a sheet. Oh, a sheet is the government coming in and taking temporary control of property until either you come back from the dead or a legal heir to your estate comes forward or is found. Do we require seances to like prove I'm still here? I'll get there. Don't touch my stuff. Basically, the government needs all property everywhere to have an owner. If it doesn't have an owner, it can't be taxed. Without having a law degree, the way I think it goes down is that Taxes are levied against the property until your heir is identified or you make a deal with a necromancer. Eventually, yes. <laughs> eventually, after so many years of being state property, your farm gets auctioned off with the proceeds, minus the taxes, and held for the heir indefinitely. This leads to an interesting accounting glitch or loophole. The government doesn't need to actually have the estate money in its possession. It just needs to be able to fulfill the money when an heir is found. So what's a good way to use the funds that are never going to be claimed? Since you died alone, your parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents have all died. Give it to the police. Well, how about an interest-free loan? Oh. Most governments can use the estate money to fund basically whatever without having to pay back any interest. As long as the money could be procured and doled out. No harm. So basically, oh, we're just going to use this money until you come and claim it. Exactly. Awesome. Cool. But, but what if you're not dead? Oh, no, what? <laughs> well, each state does it differently, but they all use a predetermined amount of time that an account needs to sit before they can borrow it. So the source of this story is Walter Schramm, who in the 1990s ran a retailer but got railroaded by Amazon and went out of business. Schramm invested in Amazon with a few thousand dollars and let the money sit. Didn't touch it, didn't look at it, didn't follow it, just let the market do its thing. Fast forward to 2015... Shram goes to cash out his account, which should have been worth over 100000 And the account was empty. After some digging, he found that Delaware had escheated his account in 2008. Instead of being worth over 100000 Shram was given his money back from Delaware. A paltry $8,000. Oh my god! That's so awful. I would be so livid. And it gets weirder. With the rise of cryptocurrency, states are now considering adding legislation that would allow the escheatment of crypto. Oh, no. I don't even understand how this works, but a few states such as Colorado, Illinois, and Tennessee have already added provisions that cryptocurrency can fall under escheatment laws. Okay, how are they going to get it, though? I... 
I don't understand it. I'm not it. telling you my one, two, three password password. <laughs> because the whole thing with crypto is it's anonymous, so who owns it? But I digress. I was floored when I found out that the unclaimed money due to a sheetman account is the fifth largest source of funding in California and the third in Delaware. And it's oh. pretty similar across the U.S. Oh my god. Oh my god. I'm sorry, this is crazy. <laughs> So I'm going to get into a bit of a personal anecdote here, but I actually thought I would have some unclaimed property in California, but their search engine only cares about property. It apparently doesn't care about money. After paying for registration for uh, my motorcycle one year, I paid a dollar more than what it actually cost. Six months later, I get a check from the DMV for exactly $1. I still have the check, didn't cash it. And I'm actually surprised it's not included because that was like two or three years ago. And I like to think I'm ruining California DMV's bottom line every year with that dollar. Just that one dollar you never cashed. <laughs> so this is the lie. First, I looked myself up. I didn't find anything. Then I looked you up. Guess what? Nothing. Also found nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't own anything in my whole life. Yeah. The government doesn't own anything of yours. Uh, I've checked a few states that we've lived in. Nothing. Uh, I did searches on a few other family members and actually found some lost money. It stinks that there isn't a U.S. database, but if you search for your state sheet, the first or second hit should be your state's unclaimed property search. Wait, so how is this the lie? Because uh, I was using the the you as in you oh, actually. You, like me personally. The government does. Stuff. The government doesn't own anything of yours. You were trying to be such oh, a of sneaky. Oh my god, you are such a villain. I can't even. I would never do that to you, audience. <laughs> Wow! Wow! That's a uh, that's really kind of crazy. Yeah. You know? So kind of depressing. <laughs> yeah. So th these three, I just couldn't couldn't think of any any subjects, any themes I could run with them. But they're... yours really did another thing. Mine actually, like, I could have easily put all of them, and I just <laughs> I just thought, well, I'll just put all these together. <laughs> yeah. So those are th that's my potpourri number one. Well, good, good, good. We learned a lot here. Well, at least three things. All right, your turn. All right, are you ready? Yes. All right, number one, water so weird, the discovery of a new type of water. Number two, Sonic Hedgehog, he's real and he lives in you. Number three, Mamalu Owahin, the sexy stinkhorn scam. Well, this is bad. <laughs> uh, I don't even know where to start. I know, that's how uh, I felt with the ores. Can you, can you read them again? Okay, number one is Water So Weird, the discovery of a new type of water. Number two is Sonic Hedgehog, he's real and he lives in you. And number three, Mamalu Owahin, the sexy stinkhorn scam. Well, I know Sonic is real because he lives in all of us. <laughs> Do you want to go with that one? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and the third one was what? You want me to read this one over and yes, over because it's hard. <laughs> Mamalu Owahin, the sexy stinkhorn scam. It's a stinkhorn. Uh, give me the give me the new water. New water, okay. All right. Water so weird, the discovery of a new type of water. Water with no boiling point, forty percent denser than normal water, and a freezing point of negative forty degrees Celsius. Seems pretty incredible. According to an article published on sciencehistory.org, in the 1960s, a Soviet scientist by the name of Nikolai Fedyakin discovered something strange. Initially, Fedyakin was researching Lord Kelvin's curious observations about how water evaporated at different rates in different containers. 
When Fedyakin attempted to condense water vapor in a glass tube, the diameter of a human hair, he found, after the tube had been sealed, stored upright, and then viewed under a microscope, that the water had separated, like vinegar and oil. After successfully recreating the results, this time with a sample the size of a single drop of dew, Fedyakin was able to tell under a microscope that the substance was more dense than water. He published his findings, which went almost completely unnoticed. In 1962, the director of the Institute of Physical Chemistry in Moscow, Boris Deryagin, found the research and in collaboration with Fedyakin, gathered a team to study the substance themselves. Pretty much boring science stuff right now, huh? Yep, just yep. boring science stuff. After confirming the same results, the team was then able to study the other characteristics of what was referred to at the time as modified water. I just did air quotes because that's the name of it. <laughs> I just realized you can't see that. <laughs> I this, saw it. Yeah, you. good job. Yeah. You're really, you had those, those eyes. I'm very observant. <laughs> the substance froze at negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit and boiled at almost 400 degrees Fahrenheit, nearly twice the boiling point of normal water. And yeah, I understand that at first I did Celsius and now we're doing Fahrenheit, but you, you, you'll know, but it, it's fine. Don't worry. It expanded more than regular water, bent light differently, and Deryagin was even convinced that this new water substance was thermodynamically stable which implied that any regular water that came in contact with it would eventually also become modified. After four years of research, Deryagin presented the results at a conference at the University of Nottingham. According to the Science History article, the name of his presentation was Effects of Lyophile Surfaces on the Properties of Boundary Liquid Films, which honestly sounds like nonsense. It left the conference attendants less than awed, and the only scientist who walked away with a hint of interest in the phenomena was the director of Unilever Research Laboratory in Cheshire, England, Brian Pethica. So yeah, with a title like that, even the other scientists, they're like, we don't know what that means. They're like being polite. They ask a couple little questions, but they're like, that didn't mean anything to us. What is Lyophile? What? <laughs> yeah, it was the warm-up for the main event. Yeah, it was just like, oh, good job. Good for you. <laughs> But one guy, the Brian, Brian Pethica, he walked away with like, ooh, let's talk about this. When Pethica took the experiment back to his own lab and recreated it with his own team, he was successful. However, the amount that was created was so little that he was unable to determine the chemical makeup of the substance other than the H2O of regular water. So basically, you're only able to make like such a minuscule amount that their instruments at the time couldn't even measure what the, the chemicals were in it, aside from what were in regular water. How did the first scientist figure out that like he must have had a good su stockpile so good supply well no like he recreated he just wrote his paper right after he recreated it but he, he was making it he made one the size of le like a drop of dew <laughs> that was the largest amount he was able to make um because basically they're just like evap they're just like condensing and evaporating water it's like yeah but there's there's that folklore that goes that's around that there's more atoms in a, a droplet of water than there are grains of sand on a beach. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's true, but, like, just even a droplet of water has a lot of, a lot of chemical makeup yeah, but in it. Yeah, but they don't have the equipment at the time. This is back in... Uh, the 60s? Yeah, the 60s. Their equipment couldn't measure that small yeah, okay. of a sample. Since their instruments could not detect such a small amount of substance... Pethica's team used the same optical microscope that Deryagin's lab had to observe the increased rate of expansion, which he initially theorized could have been attributed to silicate seepage from glass tubes. 
So, like, stuff coming out of the tubes. Mm. But doubted that as well, since the Soviets had used quartz tubes, which would not likely seep silicate. So he was like, oh, maybe that's just possibly for me. But since they had a tube, but they used a different kind of tube, they're like, oh, that couldn't be it. Um, <laughs> Pethika named it Anomalous Water and published his findings in Nature magazine, which brought the research to the attention of American scientists, which is when things went a little wild. So, like, the idea of a different kind of water, that's crazy. Water's water, right? Mm-hmm. So, what is this water that's inc- just, like, insane? Heavy water. <laughs> Slightly different water. Many scientists dismissed its existence. Others wanted to recreate it, and others still became terrified. The fear of anomalous water was that if it existed and it touched water, back to that thermodynamically... Uh, perfect thing where it could turn anything all the other water it touched into Mm -hmm. uh so if it had touched water that hadn't been modified yet it would turn that normie water into anomalous water as well kind of like that why does kids you know sketch about kool-aid putting kool-aid in the ocean would turn the whole ocean to kool-aid however this would also turn people into kool-aid and also you should go look it up it's a really funny skit and it's very short um (laughs) this would also turn people into kool-aid just for touching it you know because of course things hypothesized by scientists are always a million times scarier than a guy jumping out of the ocean exclaiming oh yeah (laughs) oddly enough this was very similar to the theme of kurt vonnegut's 1963 novel cat's cradle Although the culprit in the book is a form of water called Ice-9 that freezes all water on contact, including the water inside people, and ends with a piece of Ice-9 accidentally being knocked into the ocean and freezing the whole world over. <laughs> yeah, it's like King Midas's water. Yeah, so um, it, that's weird that he uh, published that in 1963. Uh, since the book was published after Fedyakin's research and before Deryagin's research, it's unclear if this is an instance of life imitating art or art imitating life. However, the idea of something like this was always out there because of the Lord Kelvin thing of where he's like, oh, mysterious, you know. So who knows where he got it. But Kurt Vonnegut actually got a, like, an honorary anthropology, a master's of anthropology for that book. It was kind of cool. Anyway, scientists started creating their own anomalous water, attempting to finally make enough of the substance to test what the chemical makeup actually was. Because the substance could only be made in such little amounts, their spectrometers just weren't sensitive enough to read such minuscule amounts of material, which finally came in 1969. Ellis Lippincott of the University of Maryland was a very well-respected chemist who finally brought spectroscopy. Spectroscopy? Spectroscopy? Spectroscopy. Spectroscopy results that confirm that anomalous water spectrum was not like any known substance. There were traces of silicon and sodium, but it was determined that the trace elements were not enough to be significant. Instead, it was explained that the molecules of the H2O in the water had been rearranged into a honeycomb shape, making it a polymer of water, which was then dubbed polywater. Now, some of you out there, the audience, may finally know, now that we have made it to the final name for the substance, just where the story is headed, because polywater is actually incredibly famous. (laughs) Now that highfalutin scientists like Lip and Cot were not only addressing polywater but supporting it, everyone was going crazy. Many were terrified of it being flushed down the toilet with the physicist Frank Donahoe stating, I'd regard the polymer as the most dangerous material on earth. Because they're like, oh my god, it's different, it's not water, it'll change all the water, oh god. 
The CIA began watching the Soviets' research into polywater, which worried them, considering the research was of Soviet origin. And some very Cold War headlines even claimed that there was now a polywater gap. The Soviets are going to have more polywater than us. <laughs> Scary stuff, huh? Yeah. Well, <laughs> so you're reading this, and like the thing that struck me the most is that the USSR let their scientists go out and publish papers and stuff. Like, I feel like they would have kept all that in-house. Yeah, this was, I don't think many people were taking this guy seriously at the time. That's especially why I feel like they would keep it in house. Because if if he went to a party member and is like, "Hey, I found this new water," I don't know how he wasn't laughed out of the Kremlin. You know, actually, you're bringing up a kind of a good point because we'll get to the end of this and we'll come back to this point, okay? <laughs> because I didn't think about this. Let's see. Anyways, in 1970, a pattern started to occur: laboratories in the states and abroad were reporting impurities in polywater which Diryagin, when questioned, said would appear if labs were working with dirty equipment and doubled down on the cleanliness of his own lab. He's like, oh, well, if they're seeing impurities, it's because they're gross and we didn't have impurities. The problem was Ellis Lippincott, the guy that came back with the results, the honored bringer of chemical makeup results, admitted that he was unable to replicate his previous findings. Uh-oh, polywater! <laughs> A postdoctoral scientist from Murray Hill, New Jersey, named Dennis Rousseau worked at Bell Labs where chemists were detecting high levels of contamination in samples, including sodium, potassium, carbon, oxygen, and chloride. Oxygen outside of the normal H2O. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was convinced that polywater was, well, just like dirty water. <laughs> to test his theory, he worked up a sweat at the gym and then tested the icky, sticky fluid squeezed from his t-shirt with the spectrometer, which produced the same results as Polywater, which were published in 1971. That's right, folks. Gross water is the most dangerous material on Earth. They have more dangerous water than us. <laughs> they, they have more sweat than us. They, ha they have more spit in tubes than us. <laughs> Get on those Soviets. They have been planning this whole time. After that, everyone felt embarrassed and went back to doing actual science. They're like, man, so many things got put on the back burner because all these scientists put everything down to polywater. <laughs> and try not to think about how much time they wasted on wanting to believe in the possibilities of scary water. And Deryagin finally accepted his conclusion in 1973. Sad Soviet noises. <laughs> so now that you, you read that bit, how much do you want to bet that this was a coordinated... Uh, misinformation. <laughs> I was just thinking I didn't even consider, what if the Soviets are like, this guy is a moron. Go ahead, publish it. Go to your little conference in Britain. Go spread this to the, the allies who aren't really our friends anymore. Like All the capitalist stuff. And <laughs> like their Mr. Science is like, yeah, this guy's wacky. Like, yeah, they're just let, like... Let's send the allies on a, on a wild goose chase. And how embarrassing that it worked. <laughs> Now this is taught as an example of pathological science, or basically flawed results held up by the hopes and desires of those carrying out the research. So, like, this is, they teach this all the time, and, um, like, this is one of the bad things that can happen if you get too crazy with, whoa, the possibilities, before you actually look at what other things could be causing the stuff. Also, it was honestly a failed, uh, it's not like they weren't trying to figure out what it was made of and trying to disprove it. <laughs> like, the equipment sucked at the time, it's not their fault. But, yeah, so that was the lie. Yeah. No, I got that. <laughs> Sweat has existed forever, Michael. How embarrassing. 
I honestly thought that was going towards heavy water. I know, because there, there are different references. You can have heavy water, hard water, you can have, like... But basically, that's exactly the same thing. It's just, like, water, but it's been contaminated with other materials. Well, I believe heavy water is actually just chemically different. Instead of H, H2O, it's H2O2, and I thought that your story was going to be about that. But. Oh, like, it's an actual, like, they've added an O to water? Yeah, like, it's chemically different but still kind of the same as water. It's also very dangerous. Don't drink heavy water. We'll have to look more into heavy water. We'll do some research on heavy water. <laughs> uh, well, which is your favorite? Hmm. Let's go with the stinkhorn. Okay. <laughs> okay. Mamalu Awahim, the sexy stinkhorn scam. This is less science, I promise. No good. <laughs> the other one, more science, but less science, kind of. To be clear, I only title this one a scam for the purpose of alliteration, and I'm not implying that those who took part in this were trying to scam anyone. Uh, you can take whatever you want from it. With that being said, what would you think if you were told there was a mushroom that would give you an orgasm just from sniffing it? Uh, it's like that uh, that one movie with, uh, oh god, I can't remember his name, it's Limitless. <laughs> I haven't seen Limitless, oh, so god. no. Okay, well... <laughs> Is that a thing? That basically, it's... it. <laughs> I swear to God, I thought you saw Limitless. I don't think I've seen Limitless. I don't know. Does it have instant orgasms? Bradley Cooper. Jesus. Yeah, I can see it in my head, like the, the cover. Yeah, but I've seen... Yeah, well, I don't... That's just a cover of a movie. Okay, <laughs> I don't think so I've seen it. <laughs> it's Limitless with Bradley Cooper. I had to look that up. We took a small break. It's basically... You take a pill and then you become the world's most interesting man. Oh yeah, no, I haven't seen that. I would yeah. like to see that. That sounds yeah, kind of dumb. It like, but... it like it it like uh, makes all his brain receptors like work like ten times harder. It's unlocking the other ninety percent of your brain or whatever. So you think if your brain was unlocked? Oh, isn't that like um, what was that other one? There's another one where that lady her whole brain is used, so she's like superhuman. Whatever. It's bad science, by the way. Uh, anyways, uh, a mushroom, so you think a mushroom, that if you had all of your the use of it, you could have an orgasm instantly? I mean, <laughs> if you unlock the other ninety percent of your brain, anything's possible. <laughs> okay, and then what would you think if I said, "Sorry, ladies only"? Now that we just talked about Mr. Bradley Cooper, I mean, he looks sad. It's not that <laughs> to... Orgasms aren't that hard in the first place, I guess. <laughs> I was going to say, it's not that difficult to lop off your wing. <laughs> <It's like> a... <laughs> okay, <laughs> skipping all this, let's get into the actual story. Well, in 2015, rumors of a Hawaiian fungus that could do just that took the media by storm when a supposed research paper published in the International Journal of Medicinal Mushrooms in 2001 resurfaced, purporting that unnamed mushroom was discovered in the lava beds of Maui. Well, it wasn't so much a research paper, but a two-paragraph abstract, which included only the names of the two researchers, John C. Holliday and Noah Sewell, and the associated labs, Next Laboratories in Kula, Hawaii, and Aloha Medicinals in Punin, Hawaii. I probably butchered those. I'm sorry. I can't afford to go Hawaii, honestly. <laughs> the gist of the abstract is that a new variety of Dictaphora species or a stinkhorn mushroom was found growing in lava flows aged from 600 to 10,000 years old and when conducting a volunteer smell test of the mushroom 
half of the female subjects had an instantaneous orgasm, while all of the male subjects found the smell displeasing. You're probably asking yourself, how many is half? What is the sample size? Yeah, I'd like to know too. But as Discover Magazine journalist Christy Wilcox would discover in 2016 after publishing her harrowing account of tracking down literally any solid information about this tiny piece of what would seem like a mind-blowing find, it would appear much of what was said about the amazing mushroom wasn't true. Basically, Wilcox learned that there was only one other place where this study was discussed, which was a newsletter from the Oregon Mycological Society published in 2002 titled Mushrooms and Maui 2, Mamalu Owahin, which she had to acquire from an anonymous source because it is not posted anywhere. If a scientist publishes a a scientific paper, but nobody reads it. Is it still scientific? <laughs> well, odds are no. We're finding if it's obscure, it might be obscure for a reason. Like, what a good gag! Like, oh, I have, I so I haven't told you this, but I have like ten re- uh, scientific papers written. I just haven't released them because they're false and I have no evidence. <laughs> I have zero I have evidence. Them, I have them written. But I did write them. Yeah. They so, exist. So I can... They're out there. I can... They're not out there, but they're out there. I can leak them to my my uh, uh, unknown source. <laughs> my... My anonymous. My anonymous source. And uh, then, you, then you can have them and then, and then you have them. There you go. In the paper's background, it's stated that Mamalu Owahin is a legendary Hawaiian aphrodisiac and tells the story of the daughter of the great King Kupakani, whose name was Makealani, I'm sorry, and how she stumbled upon the mushroom, which made her go wild and showed her visions on, of her future husband, whom she ran to and proceeded to tear her clothes off for. Yeah, it was actually a little bit more uh, erotic than that. It was a very strange story for it being like a legend. So, <laughs> so the legend is that passed down by like mouth on like hawaii and in the the according to the paper well so the person the two guys who originally wrote the paper they basically just wrote smut (sighs) it was a little smutty but (laughs) uh let's see here it's a great gag the problem is when local experts on hawaiian culture were asked none of the story its characters or anything about the mushroom ring a bell even the name Mamalu Owahin was a butchered attempt at saying the mushroom of the woman or women, <laughs> according to a Hawaiian language expert, which kind of signified it was probably written by somebody not from Hawaii and it wasn't written in the last hundred. Like, mushrooms aren't even technically really indigenous. Like, they didn't even eat mushrooms for the longest time. All of the mushrooms there have been brought over by Europeans. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, I didn't know that. Well, now, now I'm wondering what their decomposers are on the island because it's it's a nice moist place. I'm surprised that mushrooms didn't uh, uh, thrive there on their own. Didn't uh... well, I mean they have to have the spores there and present. It's probably just an island where mushroom spores were, didn't live. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm surprised none of like the local flora adapted to be somewhat similar to mushrooms. True, I guess that's true. Well, anyways. Well, yeah, now, now I'm wondering. Mushrooms are there now, so you don't have to worry anymore. Well, I'm wondering what, what mushrooms took the place of. Anyways, continue. Now, here's a little twist. John Holliday, one of the two named researchers in the study, agreed to talk to Wilcox about the study, but had said he was 
basically under a non-disclosure agreement to this day about it because the study was funded by a pharmaceutical company that is still trying to turn the mushroom into a marketable product. So this is what she interviewed him in 2015, 2016, the crossover there. And this was in 2001. So he's been (laughs) under this non-disclosure agreement about this for like 14 to 15 years. Yeah, the pharmacy's been trying to put them in pill form so they can still make gas stations on the highway. Which makes it even more curious when you find out that Aloha Medicinals, a medicinal mushroom producer and one of the labs listed in the abstract, is the mushroom company John Holiday founded in 1999. So that was his company. He's trying to do medicinal mushrooms. Uh, geez, John, it's not an NDA if it's just you not wanting to tell everyone you made the whole thing up to build interest in medicinal mushrooms. Yeah, I mean, okay. it's one way to make earn clout is to make it yourself yeah and just make up all your own stories to back this whole up so people are like oh no you start at the top at the top saying that you don't think that this was done maliciously or whatever and this guy definitely knew what he was doing okay it's not proven he made the whole thing up but the made-up legend to go along with it seems hella sus if you ask me and many of the people who have looked into this i think the part you could say that oh it was just bad science up until realizing there's this whole, like, legend along with it, which doesn't seem like something just bad science would put with their stuff, you know? One thing, however, may not be a lie when it comes to the effects of the stinkhorn. In the full study, it is stated that 36 adults, 20 males, and 16 females partook in the smell test. So there you go. Now we know the sample size. Supposedly, six of the women experienced an orgasm, but it's also stated very vaguely In each of these test subjects, some physiological response was noted, the most common response being an immediate increase in heart rate. What separated Wilcox's Discover magazine article from other coverage at the time was that she actually traveled to Maui and found this crazy shroom. So (laughs) she like, she went there, she was asking around, she contacted him, she would tell him, she's like, okay, well, I want to find this myself, where can I find this? And he's like, uh, it looks like this and that's all you need to know and then he didn't want to talk to her anymore so her and her boyfriend actually went out to go find this stinkhorn <laughs> and she sniffed it and yeah she did experience an immediate increase in heart rate so that much is true but it's probably because she was instantly revolted and wanted to barf <laughs> we will post a photo of the mushroom by the way it's actually so it's like it's called a netted stinkhorn where so a stinkhorn I wish I had added the photo here. I was supposed to add it here for you, but it's a, it's a pretty cool, bright colored mushroom and it has this netting. It looks like fishnet stockings that goes over it and goes all the way down the stock and stinkhorns look pretty cool. They smell horrible because they have this, um, they make this slime that makes flies come and the, the, (laughs) the flies come and carry the spores all over to it looks, so, like, it looks like half an avocado on top of a honeycomb. <laughs> yeah, so those are the white ones. Um, the one she was specifically looking for is called the, let's see here, the Dictyophora cinnabarina. It's red. It's a red-orange kind. Uh, so. Oh, wow. Would you like to guess what this mushroom is most commonly said to smell like? Rotted fish. You're going to go with rotted fish? Mm, okay. Why not? The smell of the Phallus induciatus, Dictyophora induciatus, and more specifically, Dictyophora cinnabarina, all the proper names for this fungus, apparently smells like semen, which is very strange. 
which there's not a lot of stuff in nature aside from, you know, males that smell like that. <laughs> not saying entire bodies of males, I'm saying, you know. Do you mean like asparagus semen or <laughs> pineapple semen or grapefruit semen? Grapefruit semen. <laughs> Wilcox agreed, but she added that it was more like fermented semen. So she's not saying it wanted to make her barf because it smelled like semen. She said maybe what the semen from a zombie would smell like. Just fetid, decomposed like the nastiest kind ever. And the thing is the the way that they found it, so she had read that it was supposed to smell like semen, so they knew that it kind of... But she hadn't told her boyfriend who came along with her. She, she hadn't told him what it was supposed to smell like. And all of a sudden, they're walking around, and he, like, sniffs himself, and he's like, he's like something smells like jizz. <laughs> and she's like, follow your nose. He's like, what? <laughs> but to him, it literally just smelled... It was kind of gross, but it just smelled like semen to her. She was, like, so revolted. Uh, they did a whole, like testing thing where they were gonna okay sniff it for 30 seconds then pull away she couldn't sniff it for more than like two it was so gross <laughs> so i guess people do have different reactions to it uh also funny enough that john holiday guy was still the chief scientific officer of aloha medicinals in 2018 which is now has its headquarters in carson city nevada so good for him what kind of mushrooms are you finding in nevada <laughs> They don't, they grow them in bags. They don't grow them out in the, they grow them literally in the warehouse. You know why they put it in cars and cities, because they don't have to pay any, yeah, for their warehousing. (laughs) All right. So. Bring us home. Ready for Sonic. Yeah. Sonic Hedgehog. He's real and he lives in you. He lives in all of us, but yes. He lives in me. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I'm not bringing him to it. By the way, Lion King 2 had a great soundtrack as well. Spoiler. (laughs) Jeans. Jeans are like what make us us, right? Hedgehogs. Hedgehogs are like cute little rodents, yeah? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Sonic. Sonic is a hedgehog. Okay. Don't. Don't. Don't do this. But Sonic Hedgehog is also a gene. A cool gene, which is part of the hedgehog signaling pathway in humans. A, communi- a communication system that transmits information to embryonic cells and specifically aids in proper self-differentiation. In layman's terms, which are terms that require this gene is detrimental in making sure you have two separate eyes, two separate arms, a right brain, a left brain. You get the gist. It's a really cool gene. Like, it's necessary. <laughs> you might get to this. Who named it? We'll get to this. <laughs> Great. So what's with the hedgehog nonsense? Are there tiny prickly creatures running around in my cells doing their very best to keep me from being a cyclops? Well, kind of. Maybe not exactly hedgehogs, but the reason the hedgehog signaling pathway is labeled such is because the three genes that it transmits are all pretty spiky looking. The other two are called Indian hedgehog and desert hedgehog, all apparently pretty pokey genes. So like these little these little pokey genes just... Doop, 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 doop. Now you have two nostrils. Yay. <laughs> you look so mad at me all of the time. I'm not mad. I just want to know where this is going. <laughs> According to an article by Gizmodo, the Sonic Hedgehog gene was named before the video gamers w- was released in the U.S. 
That is because a British postdoc named Robert Riddle was working at the Harvard Tabin lab where the gene was discovered and happened to see the name in a comic book his daughter had brought over from the UK, which was like an advertisement for the game's future release. By the time the Sonic the Hedgehog game released in 1991, the lab processes were also being published. Seems like a cute little story, right? It was cute. I was Wrong. Like, Aw. Well, no, I mean, the story's still cute. Oh, I thought that's hey, why are you... I'm trying to guess your story. Why do you just hate lab technicians and their children? I don't think he wasn't a technician, but... <laughs> but there has been some controversy over the name and other silly names given to genes by scientists who lacked an understandable amount of foresight. A Nature.com article published in 2006 discusses the issue modern-day scientists and even medical professionals have with names like Sonic Hedgehog. Because the majority of genome mapping originated with Drosophila, or fruit flies, it did not seem particularly important that the name stay serious or clinical. Right? That's not a big deal. You can name it whatever you want, right? Because it's yeah. never going to... Yeah, it's like, it's like climbing a mountain for the first time. You're the first one, you get to name it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Since the mapping was found to transfer to humans so completely, the genes' names have been transferred too leading to sick patients with genetic issues being told they have a mutation in their lunatic fringe, another seemingly quirky and tone-deaf name for a gene. Do you see where this might be an issue? No, not at all. <laughs> with the heightened popularity of Sonic the Hedgehog as a character for children and the discovery of a genetic disorder of the Sonic Hedgehog gene called holoprosencephaly, that can cause brain damage, facial deformities, and fetal death in utero. You can imagine why a doctor would want to sidestep that conversation in such moments of devastation. Like, that is horrifying. To You can also, like, they can use just the symbol, which is S-H-H, but when you write it down, it looks like shh. <laughs> but you're looking at this all wrong. The doctor can can calmly and professionally sit down and the little blue men inside you don't work. Oh my god. Here's a Game Boy. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Actually, it was on Sega, so... Yeah, but... I guess you can... I guess they have games now. Yeah, my favorite yeah. one was on the Game Boy Advance. You're such a nerd. <laughs> Who plays Sonic? I'm just kidding! <laughs> Please don't... I don't need angry emails about Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> With the controversy, compromise was necessary, and although the names of the offending genes were not changed, strict guidelines are now in place to keep gene names standardized and inoffensive, such as TP53 or BRCA1, so they don't mean anything to us. <laughs> yeah, that's boring. Go back to Sonic and <laughs> lunatic disease. Side note, some other fun names were Ken and Barbie for a gene mutation that caused fruit flies to develop without external genitalia. <laughs> but that's fruit flies... That would never, ever come up. I don't... I would like to... Well, I mean, that's kind of a weird thing. What are you going to Google? People without genitalia? <laughs> Fruit fly Ken disease. <laughs> don't... You wouldn't even know what they look like with their genitalia, Michael. Yeah, so... I'm also not going to Google this either, so... Another one was Pray for Elves, which was named after a researcher who wished elves would come and finish mapping their genome, like the old shoemaker fairy tale. <laughs> So, like, oh, they were telling they'd be working at three in the morning. They're yeah. like, and then I wish the elves would come finish all their work yeah, I've for been, him. I've been there. Yeah, which was a very, which is memorable because it's incredibly relatable. <laughs> there was also one called MAD, M-A-D, or Mothers Against Decem De Decapentaplasia, 
which was a reference to a related gene or protein or whatever. <laughs> like, one of the things was called decompentaplasia, and then they re- they named another one called Mothers Against... Oh my god, it was just... They were having too much fun. That one's in just labs. silly. That's that's silly. That one. They also had one called Headcase. They had they had a lot of lunatic ones. So yeah, that's the Sonic and you. There's Sonic in everyone. I was right at the beginning. I mean, you lost this week. Yeah, whatever. Just <laughs> potpourri. We'll do it again. I like how you blow it all off every time you lose. I won, so yeah. I'm happy. I'm a winner. Winner, winner. He couldn't get me this time with his evil. Yeah, I mean, like, the the problem is, without having a theme, like, I have no idea. You you, you basically just guessed as to what, what the lie was. Like, because usually, like, we do the research and we kind of know, kind of, sort of, what each other is doing. That's not true at all. We hardly ever know anything the other person is doing. You jump out there and say, oh, I think you did this one, and it's nothing like something you yeah, did. fine, whatever. You win. <laughs> You're just trying to rationalize how it's not as much of a loss for you. Come on. No, it's a loss. We're keeping L's, all of this in, L's by the L. way. <laughs> it's not about winning and losing. It's about learning, bro. I hate you so much. <laughs> We're going to have people stack up your responses when you lose and the responses when you win. Yeah, you got to start thinking about this. Yeah, whatever. We're about it next week. This is all going to be cut, by the way. I don't think any of this is funny. (laughs) Oh, God. That was was exhausting. So, stupid question because it's potpourri, but did you have any mini ones? I had plenty, but I think we're going to use those for another potpourri is the problem. Yeah, that's what it was a stupid question. I didn't have any either. Uh, do you have anything you just want to talk about? No. Same. <laughs> is, this, is this when we get off the bus? Yeah, let's get off the bus. Let's get the... Uh, thank you all for listening. Have a good one. Bye. For show ideas, inaccuracies, or general comments, you can email us at thelivepatrol at gmail.com. Intro and outro music provided by The Simulation Hypothesis by Revolution Void, found on the Free Music Archive, CCPY License. Thank you for listening. That was the couch that was on my butt. Well, is this where we stop? Uh, yeah, okay, let's stop here. <laughs> oh, okay, you go ahead and stop us. Well, thanks for listening. We're not doing this. <laughs> no, 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 no.